This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Do you think about your parents? Every day. Yeah, we think about all the good times that we had together. Do you know now who killed your parents? Yes. It was the kind of case that sends shivers down the spine. On September 6, 1988, a wealthy couple, Seymour and Arlene Tancliffe, were brutally attacked in their own home on Long Island, New York. Arlene died immediately. Seymour lingered in a coma for a month and then died. The main suspect? Their 17-year-old son, Marty. Police speculated that the motive was money, that Marty, in a hurry for his inheritance, killed his parents. It's what the police said and what local news reported. But they were all wrong. The real story is a doozy with hitman, a business partner who fakes his own death, and cops who jump to conclusions, the wrong conclusions. I'm Erin Moriarty, and this is my life of crime. This is what happens when a prosecution goes off the rails, sending the wrong person to prison and letting killers go free. And it seemed appropriate to tell you this story, along with the 48 Hours producer who worked the case with me, Gail Zimmerman. So this is a blast from the past, isn't it? It is. It's it's interesting to think about all this again. We've given it a lot of thought. It probably one of, was one of the most important stories of our careers, don't you think? I do think so, because when you say it went off the rails, it, it is one of the first times we watched a case unfold before our eyes and see, you know, saw where it went wrong. This was really the first wrongful conviction that we were really involved in. And a false confession, too. Absolutely. And that, that's actually important. Let's start at the beginning. In 
In September 1988, 17-year-old Marty Tankliff had everything going for him. He lived with his parents in a wealthy community on Long Island, and he was about to start his senior year of high school. It was a wonderful childhood. I had more than the average kid. What was your mom like? Great. Um, she adored me and I adored her. Um, we were like best of friends. Arlene and Seymour Tankliff adopted Marty as a baby and set their son up for success. Seymour, a very savvy businessman, wanted his son to follow in his footsteps, so Marty learned everything about his father's businesses. I mean, I wanted to be a businessman, so I enjoyed being involved in all of that. But that beautiful life came to a sudden halt. On the morning of September 7th, when Marty woke up, he said, he found a horrific scene. I need an ambulance. All right, hold on and I'll connect you. I'm connecting you with the ambulance. I just remember the woman outside screaming, yelling. Saying, calm down, calm down, I, I, I don't understand you. I'm sending you an ambulance. Marty's father had been bludgeoned and stabbed, but he was still alive. His mother was dead, nearly decapitated on her bedroom floor. When the Suffolk County police showed up, James McCready, the lead detective assigned to the case, took a look around. How would you describe the scene when you got there? It was, it was brutal. It was very brutal. What stood out to Detective McCready, he said, was that there was no sign of forced entry and that Arlene and Seymour's son, Marty, the sole survivor, wasn't acting the way that he expected him to. He was sitting as calm as calm can be, just like I am, sitting on a railroad tie wall with his hands clasped just like this. What would you have expected him to be doing? Oh, I would, I would think, I would, I think he would would have been crying. I think he would have been uh, uh, shaken, you know, uh, been very upset. As it, the conversation developed, I could see that uh, he was just, he's lying, he was lying. I mean, and how did you know that? It's not so much the way, what is said, it's the way in which it's said. When 48 Hours producer Gail Zimmerman and I looked back at Detective McCready's impressions of Marty, it was consistent with investigations at that time. Now, remember, this was 1988 before DNA really was being used. So cops really relied on their guts and their observation uh, powers. And he sees that somebody's alive. Two people are dead, but one person's a survivor. I think that's what stuck in his mind, and that's what made him, in his mind, solve the case very quickly. He takes a superficial walk around the house, and in his mind, he's constructing what he thinks happened. And this is a man who's very confident in his gut. This was the way cops did investigations back in 1988, so this was not unusual. They take Marty out in the driveway. I'll always remember seeing there's a picture of him, this young kid standing out in the driveway and talk to him. And then they take him into the police station. Marty initially thought he was taken to the station to help police find the killer. In fact, he told police to look into one of Seymour's business partners, Jerry Stewerman. The night before his parents were brutally attacked, Seymour had hosted a weekly poker game at their house. And in attendance, Jerry Stewerman. And according to Marty, there was no lack of tension between the two. The, the friendship had dissipated. 
Um, they essentially became enemy business partners. Jerry was Seymour's business partner in a bagel shop, and he owed Seymour close to half a million dollars. Marty volunteered this information to police and thought police should look at Storman and his possible involvement. I knew that he was there. Um, I knew he had problems with my father. But McCready was convinced they already had their man. For hours, Marty was questioned by police in a small, windowless room. It was the constant barrage that, you know, Marty, we know you did it. Everything will be okay. Just tell us you did it. We know you did it. And it was the on and on and on questioning over and over. They have him go over the story of what happened to him. They then try to trip him up, I would say, um, by trying to have him go over and over. Did you turn left? Did you turn right? What did you say? But the crucial part of this is they lied to him about the evidence. And this was likely the moment that the case took its most fateful turn. Detective McCready used a tactic that puzzles me to this day. McCready falsely told Marty that his father had briefly woken up from his coma and said that Marty was the one who attacked them. Here's my conversation about that moment with Detective McCready. You lied to him. That, that never lied, happened. Well, yes, I lied to him. Yes. Yeah, and that's all right to do? The United States Supreme Court says it is. And Marty believed it. They made him doubt his own sense of what happened. I mean, he's in this surreal situation. It's supposed to be his first day of school. It's supposed to be the day you wake up, and instead you went through this surreal experience of finding your parents dead and dying. And instead, you know, he's there, and he's beginning to doubt his own sanity at that point. And he says to the police, could I have done this? Yes. And it was all over then. Yes. Pretty much all over then. Pretty much. I don't think Marty had any inkling that he was being looked at as a, as a suspect at this point. And in fact, he was the only suspect at yes. this point. Yeah. Why would Marty kill his parents? Why? The reason he killed his parents was simply one of the simplest old things in the world, greed. Marty begged to take a polygraph, but detectives refused. I'll never forget what Detective McCready said to me afterwards. So you're better at telling whether someone's lying. I, you don't I think I'm better than a polygraph machine. Today, we know that teenagers are often vulnerable to coercion and more prone to falsely confess. But back then, Marty believed Detective McCready and began to wonder if maybe he could have blacked out and actually attacked his parents. He finally told detectives what they wanted to hear. It's like having an 18-wheeler stand, you know, driving on your chest. And you believing that the only way you can get that weight to get off your chest is to tell the police whatever they want to hear. Even admitting to a murder? Yeah. Even admitting to a murder. Detective McCready began preparing a written statement for Marty, admitting that he wanted to kill his parents. Marty didn't write it. They wrote it. What happened? They wrote a narrative. But by that point, and I don't remember how many hours later, but several hours later, Marty refused to sign it. 
He didn't. He would not sign it. And he recanted, yeah. if you want to call it recanted. He said, I didn't do this. I, I right. think he kind of came to his senses. He came to his senses, And yes. said, I didn't do it. But the damage was done because there was now this quote unquote confession in writing that he didn't write, but the cops did. And in a way that helped later on because some of the details, and we'll talk about this later, some of the details in that quote unquote confession don't match the scene, don't match the evidence. But what you said, you said that um, this is the way cops did things. That's true, but good cops, even in those days, would wait for more evidence to come in. They could look more deeply than a superficial walk through the room, and they could wait to see where blood is found, whose blood is found where. Even back in those days, they could do that. But they didn't. They didn't. The cops went ahead and arrested Marty, charging him with murder. Detective McCready thought he had the whole case wrapped up in a day. But one week later, with Marty's father, Seymour, still lingering in a coma, the case took an unexpected turn. Seymour's business partner, the same man that Marty had told police to investigate, suddenly disappeared. I asked Marty what he thought about this. Did you think he would become then a main suspect? Yes. But as a police report shows, Detective McCready still refused to even consider Jerry Stewerman as a suspect. I'm reading from a missing persons report, and this is from your department, and it says, Homicide has no reason to believe that Stewerman's absence is connected with the murder. Why not? Because he had nothing to he did not have any he had nothing to do with that murder. Didn't his disappearance Make your case harder. It, it, not that it made it harder. It just, it just added more questions. And to add to that, right when Seymour's dying, Jerry Stewerman goes on the run. He fakes his death, and he's gone for two weeks and the Suffolk County police have to go get him and they still don't see him as a suspect. And here's why. This is a very important thing. And and every time you look at a case, think about this. It's because the cops had already gotten a quote unquote confession from Marty. And so what normally would have been done, they would have, of course, thought Jerry Stewerman was a suspect or a person of interest or at least investigated him. And so in some ways, it, it, the cops were stuck themselves and they never, ever viewed him as a suspect. No, and Seymour Tancliffe was a tough businessman. I think that's undisputed. And he was really squeezing Jerry Stewerman uh, for the money he owed him. I mean, he was in over his head. Seymour died without ever regaining consciousness. Marty was then charged with killing both his mom and his dad. A year and a half later, he went on trial. I think every emotion ran through me, scared, um, fearful, um, but I was also hopeful um, because I knew I was innocent. And, you know, I always believed that innocent men don't get found guilty. The most damaging evidence at trial was that so-called confession, even though Marty never signed it and there was no evidence to back it up. The defense pointed the finger at Seymour Tankless' business partner, Jerry Stewerman, who denied any involvement. But at trial, under intense questioning on the stand, Stewerman snapped. Marty Tankless sitting over there is accused of this, and I am not. 
Only mistake Your is Honor, can we have a I lived on. To allow this I was a poor man living like a millionaire. By contrast, Marty was composed on the stand, even seeming without emotion. Marty, did you kill your father? Absolutely not. His composure worked against him. Marty took the stand, and that doomed him. He was the, he was a terrible, terrible witness for himself. He was just too unemotional. Um, when you watch this, it's painful to watch. He was doomed. The jury deliberated for a week and then reached its verdict. Guilty. Marty was sentenced to 50 years to life. Marty filed appeal after appeal. But his story doesn't end there. We'll get to that right after this break. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I can't remember, Gail. How did we decide to do this case? I always was attracted to cases where something seemed a little off. You know, I I didn't... It's fun to work on any case, but the cases where things kind of don't make sense... And there was an article we saw in the New York Times, and it was just about the beginnings of beginning to re-examine this case, and it just didn't seem right. You know, there was something wrong. The evidence wasn't fitting. Uh, the, the profile of Marty wasn't fitting. Nothing seemed right. So I think we thought, let's follow this and see where it goes. We didn't know if he was guilty or innocent then. This is a guy who's trying to get a new trial or a new hearing because he says he was wrongfully convicted. At that time, no one, including ourselves or anyone at 48 Hours, realized how hard it is to do a wrongful conviction, how much time it takes, how many shows, you know, it will take. Because what we didn't realize is every time you air a story, new evidence comes out. Yeah, we foolishly thought we could just do this in one episode and, you know, we'll, it's interesting, we'll just report it. We had no idea how complicated it would get and how much we would get involved. It just seemed kind of like an interesting tale to tell. And I have to say, one of the things that attracted me, you had this kid on Long Island. I did vaguely remember this case, and it was covered very sensationally when it was going on. It was this spoiled kid. Um, There was some TV show about it called Spoiled Rotten because the narrative was that Marty wanted more stuff that his parents weren't giving him, and he got mad at them and killed him which kind of doesn't make sense, but um, that was the narrative at the time. Well, this was the narrative that the cops and DAs gave to the press. So the press ran with it and believed it. And the idea was that Marty, you know, remember, Arlene and Seymour were very wealthy and he just, he got tired of waiting for his inheritance and he just killed them so he could get it. The problem was he was 17 and he wouldn't inherit till he was 25 and he knew it, but nobody looked at that. According to Marty's family, no one from law enforcement ever reached out to them. We, however, did. 
He didn't get any money. He, he wasn't supposed get to get any money until he was 25, 25. years old. So what was he supposed to do 17. from 17 to 25? Wouldn't you wait? I asked Detective McCready about that crucial fact. Were you aware of that? No, I was not. Jimmy, isn't it important to talk to everybody before you settle on someone when you know their entire life no. could be ruined by this? No. 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 All right. No. No. Under the circumstances in this case, um, everything we needed to know, we pretty much knew in the first day. But Detective McCready didn't know Marty like his own family did. And this is what they all told me. Does anyone here, though, think it was odd that he wasn't very emotional? No. 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 That was, that's his way. He still has that about him. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Everything's fine. This is the way he is. If Marty couldn't inherit a dime until he turned 25, why would he kill his parents at age 17? It made no sense. As Marty worked on his appeal behind bars, Gail and I started to put together our report. So when we're going to start doing a case like this, we want to talk to Marty. Right. (laughs) Yes. And it was really one of my, not my first, I have to say, but one of my early visits to prisons. We actually saw Marty in several prisons in (laughs) upstate New York. Um, And I remember... There were a couple things that really struck me. Um, number one, he, he is not an emotional guy. That worried me, worried me more than it worried you, Gail. It worried me um, he wasn't an emotional guy. Right. He never showed, he, you know, he would say how devastated he was to find his dad that way, but you wouldn't hear it or see it. And and that's exactly what happened to him on the stand. That's true. And that was a big, big concern, was trying to make him a human being who went through what he went through. The other part that worried me about his personality is by this time he had become a jailhouse lawyer. And he would just talk about the legal aspects of his case. Well, yeah, but that was, I was just about to say, that's what impressed me. And here's why. I learned from Marty, and I've used it all the years since. Marty said to us at that time something that has stayed in my head all these years. He said, I'm not in prison. I just reside here. And what he was saying was he had never joined the prison population. He was their lawyer. He would help them. But he knew he was innocent and he was going to get out. And I have now seen this. We see this over and over again. There are these people in prison, but they haven't adopted the prison culture. And it's because they, they're they almost protected by their innocence. That's always a big clue to me. If they're really innocent or not, have they adopted the prison culture? And Marty had no uh, tattoos, nothing. He was, though, an amazing, at the time we thought, an amazing jailhouse lawyer. One of the smartest things that Marty did more than a decade after his conviction was hiring J. Sal Peter, a retired New York City police detective, to do his own private investigation. This was more than just a job. This became an obsession to me. When you see a case like this and you know something's wrong, you have to have an obligation in life and you can't leave a case like this and you become addicted to a case like this. Marty is innocent. Sal Peter's addiction to the truth would eventually lead to startling new clues that would turn the case around. Jay Sal Peter, without question, was one of the best private detectives I had ever seen. Um, And he was the one 
who really helped us, you know, pointed to where we needed to look to see, number one, whether Marty did it or not. Number two, if Marty didn't do it, who did? Yes. And Jay had, when you say he's one of the best detectives, he did things. He not only solved but figured out things by connecting dots, but he was so meticulous in his documentation. Every time he spoke to somebody, he took uh, sworn affidavits from them, written statements. Um, In contrast to what the police were doing at the time, his notes were so, so helpful in putting together something. With the help of Sal Peter's investigation, we discovered inconsistencies with the physical evidence found at the scene. For example, in Marty's so-called confession, he said he used a barbell and kitchen knife as murder weapons, but not a trace of blood was found on them, even when they were microscopically examined. They said he used the knife and the barbell. Here's the problem. The knife did have red stuff on it. I believe it was grapefruit. It was watermelon. Watermelon. Sorry, you're right. It was watermelon. <laughs> and um, and the barbell had no blood on it. So now all of a sudden, they realize they don't even have the right evidence. There are knife marks, but they never found the knife that fit with that. Um, and here's another thing. They had what looked like glove prints, but they never found gloves. I mean, Marty didn't have any time to get rid of gloves. Um Here's a really important thing they overlooked. So Arlene, as I mentioned early on, that she died almost immediately. She was almost decapitated. Um, She's found on the bedroom floor. She fought for her life. Marty has no injuries, nothing. There are no injuries on him. Again, so it is hard when you look back thinking that a jury could convict him or at least It's surprising they didn't have some reasonable doubt, but that's what we were looking at when we first decided to look at this case. And their theory was that he took a shower. That's why Marty had no, he had blood on him, but just when he was trying to give his father CPR, but he had no other blood on him. And and they, and they theorized that he washed the knife and the barbell and whatever else he had to wash in a shower, but they took apart the traps that catch the water. No blood in that. No, no evidence he took a shower, no wet towels, nothing like that. They did find, and this was one of my favorite pieces of evidence, a loofah sponge that had a, that had a cut in it that a knife could have made. <laughs> it makes no sense. So if the evidence found at the crime scene doesn't match Marty's account of what happened, why did he confess? And if Marty didn't do it, then who did? Well, that's where those hitmen come in. All of that in part two of Fight for Truth. I'm Erin Moriarty, and that's my life of crime. This podcast series is developed by 48 Hours in partnership with CBS News Radio and Paramount. Judy Tigard is 48 Hours executive producer. Megan Marcus is Vice President for Podcast Editorial at Paramount. Production and editing for this season by Caroline Casey, Annie Cronenberg, Megan Marcus, Kiara Norbitz, and Alan Pang, with a special thanks to Jamie Benson. This episode was also produced by Gail Zimmerman of 48 Hours. And finally, a thanks to all of you, our listeners. We owe it all to you, the millions of 48 Hours fans. Don't forget to join me online. I'm at EF Moriarty on X, 
and we're at 48 Hours on X, Facebook, and Instagram. See you soon. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Justin Alexander, an adventurer, was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive deep into our investigation and uncover the strange events surrounding Justin's disappearance in status untraced. Check out this sneak preview. And this last experience he had with Rawat, I didn't feel good about it. In fact, I felt it was dangerous. It sounds strange, but I just, in my mother's heart, something was not okay. I felt that he was a nefarious character. Status Untraced is available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.